You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Changing Reality on WQHS Radio. So we're so excited to have you here today for an awesome session, this time on social impact. So for all of you who don't actually know what Changing Reality really is, Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are, in essence, changing not only their lives, but the worlds of those around them. So we'll be talking and hanging out with lots of amazing people from top executives in companies, social entrepreneurs, influencers, artists, individuals who are just inspiring, musicians, and anyone and everyone that you can think of. Many of them from the Penn campus, but many of them from all across the world. And we get to hear these inspiring stories of how they're instilling change and at the same time getting inspired of how we can create change as well. So I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are so many untold stories out there of people who do phenomenal things and who make waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm super passionate about learning from them and how they are changing the world in their own capacity. In my own way, I'm trying my best. I personally founded an, and I run a youth movement called Ascendance. Uh, started in Malaysia, which is where I'm from. Ascendance collaborates with not only the Malaysian Ministry of Education, but organizations all across the world to help provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. We work with students from elementary all the way up to high school through various programs, sessions, experiential learning activities, and projects that help them discover their passion, learn about themselves and the world around them, get experiences from some of the top people in industries so that they can all together start their own careers while they're still in school that creates meaningful impact. And we've been fortunate to date to work with over 15,000 students and teachers in 970 communities and have incubated countless number of student-run projects, initiatives, and social enterprises run by kids aged 8 to 20 years old. So I think in a way we're helping everyday kids change their own reality. And the best part is we're not alone in this. All across the world, there are amazing change makers who actually come forward and work together with us to make this happen. In September this year, we're actually having our New Age Learner uh, International Virtual Conference for 50,000 students all across the globe. And the speakers for these conferences, uh, for this conference, is actually are actually students who are eight to 25 years old, but are young change makers and social entrepreneurs from different parts of the globe. We've got 10-year-old Tracy Rabi from Tanzania who teaches financial literacy, to 16-year-old Kunal from India who runs a million dollar company, to 18-year-old activists from Italy or UK like Joanna Battista who actually shares about the amazing impact that she does, uh, who'll be sharing about the amazing impact she does in empowering women and promoting um, gender equality. So a lot of amazing things are happening. And if you have any questions about it or how you can change your reality, do drop it in the show chat below. And I think that today we're meeting someone who is doing the above and beyond to actually change the world for those closest in his own community, which is creating, I think, global attention, global movement. Our guest today is a recent grad from Harvard, which who is also on the Forbes uh, 30 under 30 list for social impact. Amazing, right? Today we'll be talking to the executive director of Break Time, a social enterprise and youth movement that elevates young adults out of homelessness to, uh, through financial transition, uh, sorry, through employment uh, and financial empowerment. Break Time's mission is to end young adult homelessness. 
They work to ensure um, that every young person has the opportunity and support that they need to reach their full potential. So without further ado, let's meet one of the amazing people behind the scenes who's making all this happen, the co-founder of this movement himself. Connor, do join us on screen. Hi, Harsha. Thank you so much for the warm introduction. Um, incredibly inspired by the work you're doing and super excited to be here with all of you today. Um, can't wait to dive right in. All right. Thank you. And thank you so much for being on the show. How are you feeling? Is it a great day? Yeah, it's extremely hot here in Boston today. Um, I'm from New England originally, so anything over 80 is hot to me. I know folks are joining in from all around the world, so some of you might not uh, see that as hot, but a hot, humid day in Boston, staying inside in the AC, trying to stay safe. Um, and yeah, we've, we've really had a tremendous week so far. We have a few new folks starting with us, so it's been a time of of change and new additions and really excited to um, get this time this afternoon to, to share uh, my learnings and my journey with all of you. All right, so I gave an introduction for break time, but it's nothing like hearing it from the founders themselves. So maybe you can share with this in a nutshell. I know break time is too amazing to encompass fully, probably even in the whole hour, but do try to share with the audience, what is it that break time does and why is it so amazing? Yeah, well, Arsha, you did a great job introducing us and sharing our mission. Um, all I'll add is that really at break time, the way our model works is we're empowering young adults experiencing homelessness, ages 18 to 24, um, to both build sustainability in their lives while building resilience in their communities. Um, as we all know, as young changemakers, the work that we do is what fulfills us and what it's what gives us purpose and passion and a lot of young people experiencing homelessness based on their financial situation and their living situation are forced into jobs and careers that really just don't align with their passions. Um, I had the privilege of, of going to college, I went to Harvard, and during that time, I really got to explore my interests, my passions, I got to start break time, because I sort of had this extended runway as a young person to do just that. I mean, college was my built-in time for exploration. So the spirit, a break time and the ethos behind all that we're doing is that we really want to include young people experiencing homelessness in the change making process. We hire young people experiencing homelessness um, right now, just in the greater Boston area, but we're continuing to grow and expand. And with these young people, we provide a two week accelerator focused on professional development, personal empowerment, and financial literacy. And then after those two weeks, we staff all of our associates at nonprofit employment sites around the greater Boston area. Um, so what I mean by this is there's incredible organizations like the American Heart Association, the YMCA, and other nonprofits that are in need constantly of additional support, additional people to just continue to bring their mission forward. So instead of creating our own business or creating our own operation to staff, we're, we're co-creating really cool, empowering, skill building job opportunities for young people at other nonprofit organizations. We believe deeply in the power of collaboration. I believe personally that collaboration is the root of innovation and I think the pandemic has really showed us that. Um, so all of the job opportunities that we create here at Break Time for young people um, are collaborations with other organizations that need that extra labor, that need that extra capacity support and with us, 
uh, an organization advocating on the behalf of the young people we work with. So our mission is really to engage young people in purposeful work, uh, hoping to engage them in a long-term and a full-time combination of education, uh, employment, and training. We want to equip each of our young people with over $1,000 in savings, um, with a credit score of 660 or above, and with the workforce skills they need to succeed in the long term. And we want to empower each of our associates to see their own power and potential so that they themselves can go out in the world and do the work that they want to um, to change reality. So again, really excited to be here. Super pumped about your passion about break time. And thank you all for listening. Um, always such a pleasure to share our mission uh, with, with new members of our growing community of supporters. But that's amazing. And I think like the best part of it is, is like, you're not just doing that whole like catch a fish for someone, but you're doing the whole teach them how, teach them how to catch the fish thing, where you actually show them how to actually step out, give them the right skills. So you're actually sustainably finding a solution to homelessness. Brilliant, amazing. But I've got to ask, how do you even reach the point where you can come up with an idea that is so complex, so simple, and that yet solves the problem right on the dot? Were you born a child genius or were you just like the rest of us? Were you, I don't know, hit by radiation and suddenly developed an ability to find this? Like, what's the story? How were you like when you were growing up, in a sense? No, my, my life, my childhood was not a Marvel movie. Didn't get, oh. you know, bit by a spider or... <laughs> I keep asking, um, right? someone to say yes, but all right. Shoot down from space and just appear on a farm somewhere like Captain America. None of that. Um, and I will say, adding up to what you're saying, um, we, we believe at break time that we not only want to quote unquote, teach people how to fish, but also provide them with a fishing pole. Because for a lot of our young people, um, you know, for a young person who has no parental support and no financial stability, it's incredibly hard to get started in building a sustainable life. So we're also investing financial resources in all of our young people. Um, just to, building off that analogy, something I wanted to add. Um, in terms of how I got involved in all this, and just in terms of how break time came to be, so um, I'm so grateful, first and foremost, for the young adults that I've had the pleasure of working with. Um, and in terms of how we sort of like came up for the with the idea for Break Time, Tony Shu, my co-founder, who couldn't be here today, and I were working together at that shelter, and we heard again and again about the challenges that young people experiencing homelessness face when it comes to employment, both in obtaining and maintaining a job. If you put yourself in the shoes for a second of a young person experiencing homelessness, or if you yourself have experienced homelessness at some point in your life, um, it is almost impossible to get your foot in the door in so many different workplaces. And even if you are able to get a job, there are a million different barriers that are preventing you from maintaining that job. So what young people need uh, young people experiencing homelessness in particular, is really an extended runway for successful takeoff. I was talking at the beginning about how college for me was a time of exploration, allowed me to explore my identity, allowed me to explore what I was looking for professionally, um, make new friends and relationships. For young people experiencing homelessness, they really have no time to do any of that. Their life is disrupted by an event that causes them to lack housing stability. Many young people are homeless because they come from the foster care system where they've never really had housing stability in their life, or they come from a family 
where there's abuse and neglect. Um, so if you're an 18 or 19 year old experiencing homelessness and you're trying to get into the workforce, everything is working against you. It's like trying to swim against an incredibly strong current. It just feels like a futile battle because there are so many obstacles. So what we do at break time is we really provide transitional employment opportunities to young people experiencing homelessness. Supported, empowering, skill-building jobs that will help young adults to extend their runway for a successful takeoff, continue to explore what they're looking for in the long term while building sustainability in their life to give them the ability to, to do this exploration. So our model really came out of conversations with the incredible uh, peers of ours experiencing homelessness who enlightened us on how really what they needed to succeed in the workforce and to succeed in life was that extended runway. And that's exactly what we provide at break time. Our model, our double impact initiative is focused on creating purposeful transitional job opportunities that empower young people to see their own potential power and potential and build sustainability in their own lives. So um, it's been a crazy journey over the last three and a half years building this organization. And there have been many bumps around uh, along the road that I can talk about. But the inception of this really came from the inspiration of the young people I work with. And I continue to be inspired and encouraged by those young people each and every day. Many people go and they work and for either a nonprofit or they do some volunteering experiences, but seldom do they think, do the things that you do. Seldom do they actually take that idea forward or do they actually turn it into a social enterprise into something that is like has a little business sense in it. So for you, in a sense, were you, did you always have that entrepreneurial spirit? Was it something that you had as a kid or was it just a stroke of luck, right time, right place kind of thing? Yeah, um, I've definitely been entrepreneurial since childhood. Um, definitely we all right sorry always wanted to do my own thing always wanted to be building my own thing i think it comes from having two older brothers uh who are both really competitive we were always competing at stuff i love them to death but we definitely uh had our battles when we were kids and i think i sort of really liked the idea as the youngest child of being able to build my own path and like do my own thing. Um, I remember growing up like, you know, my older brothers were much better at me than, at, than me at like basketball and baseball. So I found running and running was the sport that I went into. And my oldest brother's a doctor, the middle one's a teacher. So I found the nonprofit world, you know, I wanted my own thing. I think that's, I think any young, youngest children who are listening to this can definitely um, relate. Um, Harsha, I know you have a younger sister, so. <laughs> no, I, I am the youngest. So. Oh, you are the youngest. Okay, so you you, you can definitely uh, relate to what I'm saying. Hashtag. Of that, and then also, I had the privilege when I was growing up of just having teachers and classmates who really believed in me. Um, when I was in fifth grade, for example, so I was like 10, 11 years old at that time, um, I just kind of randomly had the idea that our school should have school newspaper and i remember with like no plan just going to our principal and I'm like hey like what if we have a school newspaper and she just said to me great like let's do it let's go for it and i got the the go ahead and i just dove in and started working with my classmates as writers and putting together this newspaper um and that just sort of spiraled and it snowballed into a lot of other projects i think growing up there was just um 
a ton of opportunities to engage in the community and do meaningful work leading projects, whether that was fundraising for a local organization, running an event, um, doing stuff on the student side, like running prom as, as, as my high school's class president. Um, I just had a lot of hands-on opportunities to lead things um, at a very young age. And that was really something that inspired me and encouraged me to keep doing it. Um, one thing that was particularly uh, uh, transformative to my life is when I was a senior in high school, I started this, um, started this initiative called the Service Learning Initiative in my hometown to teach and coach third to fifth graders to lead service projects. And a lot of that came out of the fact that I was leaving high school, I knew I was going away to college next year, and I was like, how are we going to sustain you know, some of these projects I've built, and how can I sort of pass along all the amazing things I've learned from incredible mentors to other folks in my town? Um, so I started an initiative to coach and teach uh, uh, my younger classmates, my younger peers, um, about the work that they could do in the community to create an impact and how to go about doing that strategically. Um, and I think that experience and having to you know, dive in on all the uh, strategic thinking and marketing and running all the programs associated with that was a really transformative opportunity for me to learn more about entrepreneurship. When I got to college um, in 2017, uh, I really felt the wind behind my back. I felt supported. Um, and I think, I think I had always had the privilege of feeling safe and taking risks because the people around me, um, like my family and my friends, were always so encouraging of it. So I really lucked out. But I think regardless of what situation you're in, um, even tiny little things, like a little project, like running like a, a block party in your neighborhood or um, just organizing an event at your school can be game-changing opportunities to learn about running a business. I was telling Harsha earlier that when folks apply to jobs at break time, I'd honestly say that telling me that you ran your high school's prom is probably like more important than wherever you went to school because I know from experience that these hands-on learning opportunities are what build great entrepreneurs. Um, because you just got to be scrappy and you just got to figure it out. So I unfortunately had a lot of opportunities to be scrappy, to figure things out when I was younger. And um, that really informs and, and supports what I do each and every day now as a Ben Boulder. You know, this is really interesting because normally when people hear the words Harvard undergrad, it's like, did you spend years of like high school stuck at home, like studying your brains away so that you can like be one of the cream of the crop and get into one of the best Ivy Leagues of the planet? Was that you? Were you like that kind of person? Or with all of these experiences going on, like you're definitely super smart, you got in, but like, why do you think, or do you think that those other experiences that you had were as valuable in a sense, or if not even more valuable? And if so, what value does it bring to you now, having had all of those things that you did? Yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely a nerd at heart. <laughs> I love school. Um, I remember my, my, my late grandmother used to always say to me, she's like, do you like school, Connor? And I'd be like, no. I feel like it was the cool thing to say no, so I'd always say that, but she always knew. She's like, it's amazing, you love school. And I had people around me that really encouraged me. To, to so everyone knew you were a nerd and they were okay with it, all right. Yeah, and they were like pushing it. Um, and 
you know, so so um, growing up, I definitely uh, was very engaged at school. But going into high school, honestly, as I started to get more involved with things outside of school, um, I would say extracurriculars and stuff going on outside of school took on a much more prominent role than my classroom work. Um, and I think that's part of just a fulfilling learning opportunity is being able to do something that's applied. You know, I mentioned the service learning initiative uh, before. The whole idea of service learning is is learning through actually doing work in the community. Um, and that was the learning that was most valuable to me. Um, I studied applied math when I was in college. So you think about someone studying applied math, you think about somebody stuck in their dorm room all day doing P-sets or problem sets. Um, that wasn't me. I felt like the most valuable experiences I had to learn in college and also in high school, when I was actually out in the community working with people taking sort of the problem solving and analytic skill sets I was developing as an applied mathematician and actually applying them in a real world context. Um, it's not to say that school limits you from that because school is providing the foundation, your classes are providing you with the concepts and the skill sets that you need to go out and do those things. But I think they always seem to go together. So it's very important for me in both high school and in college to find ways to really interlace my academic and my extracurricular involvement. Um, in high school, as I mentioned, a lot of that was through service projects in my community. Um, you know, it might it might seem it might seem almost impossible to try to tie like reading Moby Dick to um, running a food drive, um, but I think that what I always tried to do in school was to enjoy enjoy the classroom experience as a time where like sort of the pressure was off you know you didn't have to like go like, save somebody or like make sure that you know x thing wasn't going to happen when you're in the classroom you could just like kind of more peacefully learn and then when you're running a food driver running a project you were like on the clock and everything every second counted so i try i try to use school time as like not relaxing, but a little bit more introspective time to really dive into things, enjoy just learning for the sake of learning. And then outside of school, uh, I really poured in my energy to just learning through doing, being scrappy, running as many projects as I could. Um, and I think that combination is really important, that tension is important. Um, when reflecting on my college experience, I always say like, if I went back in time and was a senior in high school, like, I probably would have taken a gap year. I probably might have taken some time off before going to college to get some more work experience. Um, and that's definitely true. I definitely feel that way. But I think what was so transformative about my experience at Harvard is that I had teachers and a community there that supported me in kind of doing my own thing, like taking classes, but also being deeply engaged in the community, spending a lot of time off campus, working on break time and working on other things. Um, and to me personally, that is what really developed me as a leader and a social entrepreneur, that ability to sort of combine constant learning with constant doing. Because um, I think when we disentangle them, we don't get a great experience on either side. Um, so as I've graduated and you know dove into break time, what I've now been finding is I'm constantly creating opportunities to sort of replicate that classroom learning environment um, so I'm starting to 
take classes again around like management and around growing a business. I'm starting to um, invest more in fellowships and opportunities that help me to learn in community with other social entrepreneurs. And I think it's really because that, uh, that combination of, of learning and doing is what really unlocks your potential. Um, and in as much as you can, it's important to try to not separate the two. No, I think that's absolutely brilliant. And um, I think that that's also what we try to replicate here with the sentence, give people that combination in a sense. And that combination just lets all the neurons in your brain collect, connect in a way. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've had the success that we've had in engaging youngsters to not only do well amazingly outside of school, but give them a purpose that makes learning much more meaningful in a sense inside of school. And I'm going to ask one more question about this because we, Again, you seem really smart. You were, you both had like all the social service, you've got all the grades. So it's like, you could have gone to any university in a sense, or technically some would argue that Harvard's one of the best. So, but Penn students, so I can't say that. Like you could have gone Penn, I'm just saying. But like, so why pick Harvard? You mentioned something about the environment. How important is the environment of a place for you? And even at home, even at your own community, how important is environment? And like, do you think that it is important at all in effect? Absolutely, yeah. So to me, Harvard is local because I grew up in Central Mass. So I grew up right here in this area. I live in Boston now. So the Greater Boston community is home to me. Um, so Harvard, which is in Cambridge, right outside of Boston, it was maybe 40 minutes driving from my childhood home. So very, very close. Um, you know, it's a global institution that attracts people from all across the world. But for me, it was like a local school, you know, <laughs> um, an amazing local school, but a school that was right down the street and didn't take me away from the communities that I deeply cared about. Um, the nonprofit work I did growing up, a lot of which was rooted in my experience with an organization called Project 351 um, that really inspired me to do this work that those opportunities, those experiences were all in the Boston area. So I just felt connected to Boston. I knew I wanted to go to school close. And when I was considering different colleges and opportunities, I knew that Harvard could be a place where I could continue to be rooted in these communities, but also uh, have access to resources and opportunities um, that would really unlock um, new potential for the work I was doing. So my first interaction with Harvard was actually through my community service work, um, uh, meeting a Harvard student group that was like co-running a, a service project with me. And I just realized like, if there are people like this at this institution, they're running these amazing projects that are going out of their way to support the community, I wanna be there. Um, and I think it's gonna be a great place for me to learn, grow and continue to develop. So. Um, that's why I chose Harvard. There's definitely like other schools in the mix and, you know, like for everyone uh, who's applied to school, it's a crazy process of thinking through a lot of different options, but I'm really happy I did it because it kept me local, uh, rooted in the community, uh, and it also unlocked opportunities for me to, again, combine my learning uh, with the actual action of the work that I was doing uh, within the community. 
Very cool. And I really like how it's like for many people, I'd say getting into a good university is the goal and they do all of the social work to actually do that. But you actually have it on the flip. You, your goal is to empower this community and to give your best to this community. And you go to the best in a way to get the information, to get the resources that you need to best serve the community. So definitely something that um, I think we all should learn from. And moving forward from that, now you're a student or like moving in the timeline, you're a student in Harvard, you're coming up with like these ideas. And you mentioned a little bit about how you came up with the idea for break time. But what was the first thing that you did after you had that idea? Like, did you just say like, mm, thinking is hard, I'm gonna go take a nap. Or like, did you like say, let's come up with a plan now? What was the first thing you did? Yeah, well, so first of all, in terms of, um, in terms of the first thing you said, I definitely think, um, school and college in general is a resource it's a tool for you to achieve your dreams um it's such a privilege to go to college it's such a privilege to have teachers and classmates invest in you invest in your success so it's our responsibility to really take that investment and, and fuel it towards impacting the lives of others in our community who don't have that opportunity and privilege to go to college. And that's something I believe in really firmly, um, which is why I always encourage classmates and friends to sort of step off campus as much as possible because you can get sucked up into sort of this bubble of, of privilege and forgetting about sort of the everything that's happening outside of campus. And universities exist to help us to be better servants and leaders within our community. So, I think it's really important to go into school with that mindset and to try to leverage school as much as you can to make yourself a better change agent in the community. Um, in terms of your question about break time, so my co-founder, Tony Shu, actually, um, it was, I think, January 15th of 2018, so three and a half years ago at this point. As we were working together in the shelter, he had actually journaled one night about how it would be really cool to start something with Connor. Um, we didn't really know each other that well at the time, but he invited me to dinner at our dining hall, at our college dining hall, and we just got to talking about young adult homelessness, about the work I had done growing up, about the work he had done growing up. He grew up a couple towns over from me. Again, we had never really known each other, but we just connected so much on this issue, um, and we'd been so inspired by our peers experiencing homelessness. Um, so the passion was there through this dinner, we just started to get cracking on ideas of kind of started with who should we connect with about this just to talk through ideas and, and get feedback. And so we started setting up conversations with folks that I had known for my work in the community um, and just really exploring because one thing that's really important to do is, is understand the landscape of what's already out there before you start something because you don't want to inefficiently duplicate something that's already being done well um, or in other words, reinvent the wheel. Um, and you also wanna make sure that you're really complementing the amazing work that's happening out there and doing your best to serve a niche need to operate within your own niche that's gonna add value versus just displacing the existing solution or again, replicating something that's already being done well. So throughout, I mean, it's a continued process to this day, but throughout the first three to six months of, of working on break time, the largest focus of Tony and me was really on understanding the other organizations, the other nonprofits working on this issue and where there were gaps. 
I think that's the best first step because you'll actually learn and be inspired immensely through that process. Um, everything that we've done to date has really come out of that research process, that process of working with young people, working with organizations. And if you go out and you do that learning and you just ask organizations and people like, what do you need? Where are the gaps? You will get so inspired about what you could do because you'll find out so many trends. You'll be like, wow, like these five people all basically said the same thing. Like this is a clear and acute need. And you just got to ask and listen. So I think connecting and listening are the most important um, kind of first steps when starting something. Um, definitely lots of notes too, keeping yourself sane as you have a billion ideas rolling around in your head. Um, but there's so many amazing people out there doing incredible work. So learning from them and really learning how you can help them through your work um, is a great way to get started. And I think that that's so meaningful because like, like even with the sentence when we began, we just went out there and asked students, if you guys could pick whatever you wanted to learn, what would you do? We started really getting like, getting to know them, getting to know teachers. And I feel like one of the things when many people have an idea for a startup now is that it's just like, what do we do? Let's start working on it straight away. But there might actually be like a whole like like community that's working to address this problem. And like you you don't you might not even know about it or you may not even know the best way to go about it until you actually talk to people and you go out there and you actually speak to them. And I'm gonna quote you on something actually. I read somewhere in an article that you actually said something like we learned the tools and resources to create transformative social change already exist. And they just needed to be coordinated in the right way, which I didn't. <laughs> right? There's no fake corner going around like like saying stuff in your name. Okay, <laughs> but like um, that's that I think is very powerful. And I've always been a fan of, or at least trying to learn how to think and link these resources up together. But for you, how did you come to this realization? And how do you actually piece together the resources that you found into something that creates actionable change? Yeah, I would say, well, first of all, th thank you for, for bringing this up. This is something I really uh, am passionate about and believe strongly in. Um, the opportunity to learn from others and to learn about the incredible work that other change makers are doing to change reality um, is both humbling and encouraging. It's humbling in the sense that we feel, wow, there are people out there doing this amazing work. Um, and it kind of is a kick in the butt for ourselves to be like, okay, like, what am I doing? How can I do better? But it's also encouraging in the sense that it reminds us that we're not in this alone. Um, I will always remember my, my, uh, my middle brother, Mark, in his graduation speech talked about how uh, he, he's, an, he's an astronomer at heart and he talked about how the size of the universe is both humbling and encouraging. It reminds us that, you know, we're infinitesimally infinitesimally small compared to the size of the galaxy but that just means that we have so many people and resources around us to do incredible things and that we're not in this alone and that our experience on this earth is not um is not just unique and lonely that we have sort of so much beyond ourselves to look at and to be inspired by and that's really how, how i felt on the much smaller non-galactic level of looking at the landscape of young adult homelessness services and understanding the organizations that were already doing incredible work. Because when you're approaching a problem and trying to address something, 
it's important to look at both the problem landscape and the solution landscape. You want to understand, okay, what is the issue? And that's not the end point. We all sort of hear a ton and research a ton about issues and how they work. But the next step that you really have to take is learning what's actually being done to fix it. Because if you only know what the problems are, then you, you know, and you try to create something to fix them, you're just going to have duplicating efforts, reinventing the wheel in so many different ways. So when I shared in, in that article that you quoted that the tools and resources to create transformative social change already exist and just need to be sort of coordinated in the right way, what I meant by that is there's so many organizations, there's so many entities, so many people out there who are already doing great things. We're not alone in these battles. We're not the only people who are recognizing these problems. So it's important for us to go out there, understand that solution landscape, and see where we fit in. You don't have to have your own 501c3 or your own corporation to be an entrepreneur. You can work with existing entities to help them to innovate, to change, to grow. You can work within existing companies to you know, create new things. Understanding the solution landscape, understanding the approaches that are being taken to solve a problem is in some ways much more important than understanding the problem itself because you can then coordinate and collaborate with these pre-existing entities, these pre-existing efforts to find ways to maximize your impact. Because the, the worst thing you want to do is like wake up one day and say, I just spent five years working on something and there was already an organization doing it way better than me. And if all this money invested in my organization and invested in that organization, the world would be better off. You need to you need to sort of to avoid that situation and, and to avoid waking up five years later in a panic. You want to come into entrepreneurial work with a humble mind, yet encouraging mindset around what is already being done. So that's really something that I believe in strongly. For break time specifically, we learned this very acutely at the beginning of the pandemic because we had been working towards opening a cafe to create entrepreneurial job opportunities for young adults experiencing homelessness. But what we realized as the, as the pandemic was starting is that there's so many nonprofits out there that already need extra people and extra support, as I mentioned earlier in this segment. And so if we are just able to train and staff those young people at other organizations, then there's no fixed cost to that. We don't have to build a building. We don't have to build a kitchen. We don't have to build a cafe. And we can you know, add value to pre-existing organizations that already have that building, that already have that operation, and just need more people. If we see problems from a multidisciplinary lens, and if we really understand our solution landscape and everything that's being done to solve a problem, then we will maximize our impact and change reality in the largest way possible for the communities we care about. So that's something that I believe in really strongly. Again, as I mentioned earlier, collaboration is so central to innovation. Um, and that's something that's been a guiding principle to my life personally and all the work I've done at work time. I completely agree. And again, it's something that I've always believed in. One of my mentors' most favorite quotes is he always says, you already have the resources that you need to go to the next level to achieve that goal that you want. It's just you've got to figure out how do you use those resources? How do you coordinate? How do you link them up? And he and he'd always say, like, if instead of everyone working on solving world problems, like 
by themselves, if we just came together in a sense, we'd be able to kind of pile in the resources to actually solve it faster, more efficient and cross borders so that the whole world grows together. And I think that what you're doing is very in line with that. And that is phenomenal. But again, like from my experience, many times, especially when you're just starting out, you go out, you speak to these big organizations, even though I believe in collaboration, like perfectly many might not or there might be a few that might not and you do end up facing rejections you do end up facing people who are like what is this kid doing here why aren't you in class kid so did you face any of those obstacles and or did you ever face anyone who wasn't so receptive to what you guys were doing and how do you actually like counter that absolutely um 100 and i still do this day there are some people who sort of you know, even in the social sector, get in this mindset that the work of other organizations is a threat to the existence of their organizations. There's this sort of competition that this feeling of limited resources that we're all competing for grant funds or all competing for the resources we need to build out our organizations. If you feel that way, you're going at it all wrong because the role of somebody in the social sector is not to create their own organization, their own entity, just so they have their own organization, their own entity. The role of someone in the social sector is to contribute to society and to maximize the impact that the social sector is able to have collectively on the communities and need. So there is a lot of selfishness in the approach of, um, of certain leaders in the social sector that's driven towards just their own organization. And this is something with that breakdown been grappling with because um, we've gotten a lot more involved in the policy space and through our early conversations with legislators, what we're beginning to prioritize is policy that's going to affect hundreds of organizations and tens of thousands of young adults instead of just earmarks that are going to get break time money. Because the role of an organization in the social sector, the role of a person in the world is to impact way beyond just themselves. And I think the selfish mindset, the survival mentality that's sometimes adopted by certain organizations is extremely toxic to the communities that we're trying to support. And our failure to work together in an efficient and collaborative way is a threat to um, the integrity of our work and is a threat to um, all of the communities that we're ultimately each individually trying to support. So I will never say no to a, to a call with a potential collaborator. I believe it's in, in a, an extremely passionate way that you're never done working together. It's a constant process and that we all have to constantly work to support each other. I'm so thankful that here in Boston, there have been so many amazing organizations and mentors of mine who have just dove into wanting to collaborate. And I think the pandemic has definitely begotten a lot of that energy around collaboration. So I've definitely gotten lucky and break time has been lucky to, to have many success stories of collaborations, but there have also been countless times where, you know, folks see us as the new kids on the block. They see us as a threat to their funding. Um, they might see us as, you know, just another organization in the space. But ultimately, if a problem isn't being fully solved, if you understand the solution landscape and you see a gap, then you can be confident in the fact that you should be there and you should be at the table. And you should be working together in community with um, a number of different partners to achieve the social impact that you want to achieve. So as you can tell, collaboration is something I feel very strongly about. 
And I'm so lucky to have such amazing collaborators and partners. So I could go on and on about dozens of nonprofits. We work with incredible mentors of mine, uh, my teammates and partners on the Brave Time team, incredible young people who work with us and alongside us to inform policy and to inform our own organizational change. Um, working together is fun. Working together is effective. Working together is efficient. It's impactful. So couldn't put in uh, a larger plug for collaboration. All right. Megan, 100% agree. And I think, but again, I've got to ask, I've got to play devil's advocate here. I'm so sorry. But like in as much as I believe in collaboration, I feel like sometimes different people come at it a different way. So even within an organization, there is sometimes competitive feelings or like, especially when you work with different people with different mindsets. So how do you actually collaborate within your team in a sense, in a way that's effective? And has there ever been anyone who takes time to adjust to this whole, oh my God, people are trying to help me. Oh my God, like, like I can collaborate. I don't have to compete kind of thing. And has that caused trouble? How do you fix it and overcome it as a team? Yeah, so I work with incredibly collaborative uh, people on the break time team. We're a team of about 20 people now, I think 12 full-time and eight part-time at this point. We were just two for context a year ago, so we've grown really quickly. And as we've been hiring like 18 folks over the last, I don't know, like, 12 or so months, um, we have really prioritized whether somebody is a collaborative uh, change agent in, in terms of deciding who to hire. And the first thing that we put on all our job descriptions is, are you somebody who believes strongly in the power and potential of young people? Because that's really important to being able to work together with other young people, for other young people. Um, so. I'm so blessed to work with such amazing collaborators on my own team at Great Time. But the resistance to collaboration, you're talking about the competition, I think it, and it's totally natural, and I'm definitely not trying to demean anyone who sort of feeling that right now. But it's important to remind ourselves that that impulse, which we all will feel time to time and can sometimes dominate our life, that impulse to feel competitive, that impulse to feel like somebody else's success is your failure. It comes from it comes from a place that isn't healthy for us. It comes from a place of having our not having our eye on the ball. In the social sector, at least, um, and I think just at the world in the world at large as citizens, our role is to um, our role is to work to impact the lives of others. Our role is to have impact in the community. Our role isn't to satisfy ourselves. Our role isn't to support um, just ourselves. So the competitive impulse between organizations or within organizations is counterproductive ultimately to the work we're all trying to accomplish. Again, it's very natural to feel and we all feel that at times, but it's so important and vital that we work together to overcome that and to really be collaborative because ultimately we're not going to do best by the communities we're supporting if we are feeling like we're like fighting for resources and fighting for attention and fighting for opportunities. So um, obviously competition is a, is a natural part of society and the way we live, but I think it's incredibly important that we um, really embrace the power of working together. One like a big example that anyone can relate to is during the course of the pandemic, both the development and the distribution of of vaccines has been extremely collaborative 
And at least here in the United States, the federal government has subsidized that process and encouraged and incentivized the collaboration of uh, drug makers and distributors, um, you know, the folks who actually develop the formula for a drug and the folks who are actually producing it. And that collaboration is the reason why vaccines are actually existing in the first place and being distributed. Um, so that's just a major example of the power of collaboration and the importance beyond just the social sector, within our own lives in the private sector uh, and government for us to really be thinking about how can we complement efforts and work most effectively and efficiently. Um, so I can't, I can't emphasize it enough. Collaboration is so key and it's important for us to fight that impulse to feel this sense of sort of unwanted competition with, with uh, folks who should be our partners. Okay. And I think, again, something very important, as you said, I think we've all kind of like grown up in a little bit of a competitive like society, whether it's competing to get the best grades or having siblings. Yeah, so it's like some part of competition's always been in our lives. And it's like, at times it's healthy, at times it's really not. And especially if you want to make change, especially if you want to have like a meaningful impact, you've kind of like got to rein in those impulses and keep that constant reminder to collaborate. And I think you do that very well. I, if we had more time, I'd spend like a lot more like picking your brain on how actually you squish those down because I think that that itself is such an important process. But let's talk a little bit more about um, break time. Uh, you guys right now have your double impact program, which you adapted because like, if I'm not mistaken, you had the initial idea at the cafe. And then like all of us who had brilliant ideas or thought we had brilliant ideas, a pandemic came and kind of like gave us a shock a little bit. So tell us a little bit about this double impact program and um, what's it about? Yeah, so I guess building off of what I, what I said previously, in addition to being collaborative, we have to be adaptive. And we hear the buzzword of pivoting all the time. Um, but it's important to realize that you're not just going like, to pivot once and it's going to be over and the innovation stops. It is an ongoing and constant process. It's not like Tony and I woke up one day and came up with this idea and it just been an execution mode for three and a half years. We've constantly been going through a process of experimentation. As we learned in, in school, like the scientific method and the process of going through asking yourself a question, you know, uh, proposing a hypothesis and testing it out and making conclusions is an iterative and circular process that really is the essence of entrepreneurship. So what that looks like at break time is again, coming to the pandemic, we worked to open a cafe. And then as the pandemic halted the construction of our cafe, we got into conversations with the city of Boston, the city government about how, um, food insecurity was rapidly rising across the city because of the pandemic. In fact, um, we were seeing as much of a six, as a 60% rise in food insecurity in my home state of Massachusetts in the US. Um, and that was something we had never seen before. It was scary. Organizations didn't have capacity to serve the number of people that were asking for support. We had organizations that I knew personally who were trying to serve three times as many clients as typical. So we sort of put two and two together and realized we've got this workforce of young people who are experiencing highly increased levels of unemployment. And we've got these organizations that are trying to support um, a rapidly increasing group of people experiencing food insecurity. 
So in partnership with the city and about 30 nonprofits across the city, we were able to set up a meal production grocery distribution operation to employ and empower 25 young adults experiencing homelessness to serve over 650,000 meals to folks in the Boston community, building skills from themselves while empowering and saving the lives of their neighbors in need. Moving into 2021, you know, we never stopped adapting, never stopped pivoting because what we learned through the process of running that operation is that break time can be most successful the more we narrow in on our young people. And in addition to providing all the support services we provide to our young adults, we're also trying to run this whole operation. And what we realized is if we just focus on staffing young people at pre-existing organizations with pre-existing operations that have an impact in the community, that's how we can be most effective from a systems level of creating change and creating double impact. That double impact being impact both on the life of each associate or young person who comes through our program, as well as the lives of the thousands and tens of thousands of people that our young people are impacting through the work they're doing at other nonprofits. So those um, impulses to be collaborative and adaptive are so important because by working together to understand the solution on the landscape, understand where there are gaps, and then by adapting to fill those gaps as much as you can, uh, that is how we ultimately create social change. It's important to never deviate from your mission, your core mission. Our mission has always been to end young adult homelessness, but it is so vital and important, necessary for you to tweak and change, sometimes radically, the machinery with which you accomplish those goals, the mechanisms you use to solve a problem. And that's what we've had to do through creating this double impact initiative. Instead of Break Time Cafe, we've got the Break Time Double Impact Initiative because we realize that we can actually double our impact by hiring young people not to run a cafe, but hiring young people to run essential services for their neighbors in need throughout the community. So that's the pivot that we've really undergone and as I said, as we continue to grow and expand, we are constantly challenging ourselves to think differently about the impact we could have and then the way our model could work. That's amazing. And I see that a big part of like the work you do is kind of like taking kids who would be homeless, who are in need of the help, and there's an element of it that's kind of like transforming their skills, their characters, the way they look at things, their mindset in a sense. Have you ever met anyone that just is unable to change or is resistant to change in a sense? And if so, how do you help them? What can we do about it? Yeah, I think we really see our work as a partnership with our peers experiencing homelessness because the perspective, experience, knowledge, intelligence, etc., of the young people we work with is immense, diverse, and is incredible. So we don't want to come into the life, the life of a young person and say, okay, so we know everything. We're going to tell you, this is how you should think. This is what you should do. But rather we want to work with them to unlock the tools and resources that they need to succeed in the long term. Because we all have a different way about going about things. And sometimes because of the sort of general professional standards through which our workforce works, it can be challenging for sure to help a young person to adapt to an environment, a professional environment. It is not what they're used to. Because some of us grew up in school environments where we basically like told to be quiet, be very educated, be very 
disciplined and had parents and other role models who really coached us to conform to the professional standards of our environment. Whereas other folks, other young people, didn't necessarily have those same opportunities and privileges. So instead of trying to like force, um, force certain beliefs on young people or tell a young person that they're doing everything wrong and they change everything, we're really partnering with our associates to work together to figure out how they can succeed in the workforce. And the most important input in that process really comes from the individual associates. What is your dream job? What is it that you want to get out of this experience? What impact and change do you want to see in the world? And that is our guiding point for how we go about creating impact with real time. I always joke and say, when people ask me, like, what's it like not having a boss? I was like, I actually have more bosses than I can count. Because every single young person who comes to this program is somebody that I'm reporting to. I'm, I am responsible for making sure they have a good opportunity, a good experience working with my team. And it is so vital and essential that we, again, come at this work from a collaborative and adaptive approach and understand that we're working with the community. We're not just working for the community. And we also have to be ready and willing to adapt our viewpoints on things as we learn new things from our young people and as we continue to have to change our approaches to going about certain impactful work. And I think that that's the true spirit of being a youth movement, right? You say you're a youth-led movement, which doesn't just mean that you're young and you are, you're only 22, but it means that you listen to the young people in the space and you kind of like take their input to continuously grow, which is again, I think something that social enterprises, youth movements, like organizations all around the world can learn from, something that I think Ascendance has been advocating wherever we can to listen to the youngsters, to listen to the people you're working with, because many times they have the potential to actually come up with the solutions if given the right environment, the right guidance, the right support in a way. And talking a little bit more about different organizations in a sense, you've got like, or technically everyone's got kind of like this front row seat to the debate between non-profits or like for-profits and both of them ignore social enterprises completely. So it's like, um, well, which which side of the debate do you lean to? The more non-profit side, the more for-profit sides, what's the pros and cons in your opinion? Or do you like, or are you making a case for social entrepreneurship, which um is in a way, how do you serve the community and at the same time be sustainable, have a career out of it? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's a great question. And my views definitely changed on this over the years. Um, I think the central question you need to ask yourself when starting an organization is, is my first and primary goal to impact the lives of others? The answer is yes. I do think that the nonprofit structure makes the most sense. And the reason that I say that is, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the nonprofit world. What, at least in the United States, what a 501c3 nonprofit is, is it's an entity that is not paying out any sort of surplus or returns to shareholders. So when a bank or somebody asks me, like, who's the owner of Breakdown? I always get frustrated by this question because I'm like, there is no owner. There's no owner of a nonprofit. You as executive director, me as executive director, report to a board. The board is the governance body of the organization. But there are no shareholders. I don't have a percentage of break time. I, I'm not owed anything in terms of the returns of break time. So if on our balance sheet at the end of the year we have a surplus, which is what a healthy nonprofit should have, that does not mean that I'm seeing any of that money or that anyone is seeing that money. Because the investments that happen in our work 
are not investments for equity. They're investments for justice, they're investments for impact. So instead of being in a situation where the primary driver of your work is an interest in returns to shareholders, which is sort of the natural setting with which the for-profit structure, particularly in the United States, sort of like the natural sort of default setting that environment, um, it, it can work for certain organizations, but you're sort of forced into a place where returns to shareholders have to be the primary motivator and driving force because that, that's what you're accountable for. Now, can for-profits work to incorporate uh, shared values of environmental, social, and governance good within their practices, within their goals? Absolutely. And I think all for-profits should be doing that. But if you're looking to start a for-profit, ultimately that's a legal decision of how you're in financial decision of how you're incorporating your business. And that means that you're going to be completely reliant on revenue and you have, you have to have a fully revenue driven model. There's no, there's, I mean, you can get some startup funds that are like free cash, but you, you're not getting on the philanthropy, you're not getting donations and support. So you're saying that I have a fully sustainable revenue model. I am opening up my organization to be driven by the interests of shareholders. And if you want the organization to still be impactful, you just need to make sure your shareholders are folks who consider um, impact to be a huge part of their interests and the benefit that they want to receive from being part of your organization. However, if your interest is in creating impact, if your interest is in um, working in a context where, when you can, where you can leverage the tools of philanthropy, you can leverage the tools of individual donations, um, where you can get additional government support as well, then it makes sense to be a nonprofit. Breakdown actually started out as an LLC or a limited liability corporation. And what that means is that Tony and I technically were the co-owners of Breaktime when it started. It's probably the easiest way to start an entity. It's just an easy, low liability way to get things started. Uh, we relatively quickly moved towards starting our own nonprofit. Um, because a nonprofit is technically a corporation, um, it can be challenging to do that right off the gate because you've got to have a board that you can list on your 1023, which is the formula of the file in the United States to get nonprofit status. You have to have other, you just have to have more things in place. So starting out, you know, an LLC is really boosting the way to start out. And that's how we started. And there came a point, probably at the beginning of 2019, where we really had to make a decision in the direction we're going. We decided to go in the nonprofit direction because the reason we started this work was, was not to to enrich ourselves or to get money to certain shareholders, it was to end in a homelessness. And we felt like the best way, the easiest way for us to achieve that was by being a nonprofit where we could leverage more mixed revenue streams, including philanthropy and donations and certain government grants um, to achieve this impact. And we could do things like partner with nonprofits. Our nonprofit employment partners are paying us $10 an hour per person that we're staffing at the organizations where we're able to leverage philanthropy and government support to cover the remainder of wages so that we're able to pay young adults a living wage. We're able to invest $50 a week in a match savings account so they're building over $1,000 in savings by time break tenants. And we're able to get resources that don't have a profit-driven um, origin and that aren't revenue-based. So we're able to get donations. You know, donations that are just put towards the impact and we're able to commit those 
to things that don't have to be profit generating. We can provide that money to young people, invest in young people. We can put that towards policy change. We can put that towards um, just meaningful things that it would be harder to do that within the context of a for-profit organization. So it's not a meaningless difference. There is a really big and important distinction. And um, I tend to favor for social entrepreneurs, creating social enterprises within the nonprofit structure. It frees up more capacity for you to leverage additional income streams, allows you to focus on your mission, and also allows you um, to really uh, truly ground yourself in the right space and with the right partners. I think also from a credibility and partnership perspective, it's a lot easier to build partnerships with the right people if you're a nonprofit versus a for-profit where you might face more critique, criticism, skepticism, et cetera. Okay. And I think like it all boils down again as to what you said, like what's your aim, what's your objective, what's the best way to actually get to that objective. And also the other thing that you said, it it's like it's a myth that being a nonprofit means that you are constantly looking for money. You can be sustainable, you can actually have surplus, which is what you should have in a sense for healthy nonprofits. And you and I think your team have been doing this amazingly. I think I read in your impact report that break time actually achieved a two thousand increase in your like top line gross revenue from like last year to oh, sorry 2019 to 2020 which is amazing congrats and i hope that you guys keep growing and keep doing amazing things and i think that just to as we wind down our conversation in a sense what do you think was the most challenging part of this whole experience this whole journey for you it's a great question um definitely been a lot of challenges along the way i definitely don't want to make it seem to anyone like this has been Easy peasy, uh, natural or anyway. There's so much I've had to learn and continue to learn. I feel always joking that I'm learning new things every day and constantly feeling underprepared. I think the biggest challenge I've had is really with learning how to put the structure behind, the organizational structure behind executing an idea. I love ideating program models and figuring out, okay, what's the model that's gonna change the world and create all the impact. I love doing that, love doing that since I was a kid. But figuring out how to staff for success, how to build a team, how to build a team culture, all of these things are exciting learning challenges that have definitely been um, definitely been challenges for me as I've been a new leader and been trying to figure it all out. Um, even things as simple as like, how do you onboard a new staff? How do you prepare that person to be successful at your organization? How do you promote their professional development? These are the things as you build a team no matter how small or large your organization is, you'll have to think about it. So I think those things that we all share in common, all organizations share those challenges, um, are the challenges that I was like sort of least anticipating or preparing for because I was so focused on, okay, let's end the adult homelessness, how do we do that? And it's like, oh, I actually have to like run an organization and a team, <laughs> all these things. So that's definitely been the biggest challenge, but I'm, I'm so grateful for the support that I've had from my team and from my mentors in, in um, adapting to, to my role and trying to become a better leader of my organization. All right. And I think, again, so much we can learn from you. But let's say there's some kids somewhere around the world who suddenly, from listening to you, and I'm sure there's many of them right now, are going, oh my God, I want to solve this problem. And now after listening to this, I realize that I need to do something about it and actually want to like try something meaningful towards it, do something actionable towards it. What would your 
first step be? Or what was your initial advice for these kind of people in a sense? Like, what do we do? We hear this talk, we're inspired. Like, where do I start? Do I Google it? Or do I like like email Connor until he blocks me? Like, what, what's the story? Like, where do we begin? Well, I definitely encourage you to, to reach out to Breaktime and our team um, at info at breaktime.org. Feel free to ask any questions you want. Learn more about our model on our website, www.breaksound.org. Um, but no matter what you're looking to do, I think the, the, the approach to start is the same. You've got to take a collaborative and adaptive mindset every step of the way. You've got to start by studying the problem landscape. Do everything you possibly can understand to dissect every little detail about that problem you're interested in, no matter what it is understand everything. You can do a lot of that research online. You can talk to other organizations. You can talk to people directly affected by the issue. I think that last part is the most important. But more than just understanding the problem landscape, as I mentioned previously, it's really important to understand the solution landscape. Understand what other organizations are doing, what their folks are doing, how their models work, and start to try to see where there could be more or where there could be something different happening. That's really what entrepreneurship is. It's seeing what's already out there and being like, okay, this we could be doing this differently, or we could be doing more of this, or we could be connecting these two things differently. The, the tools and resources to create tools of change already exist, and you just gotta go out there and you gotta map them out, you gotta figure out how to coordinate them, and that's your starting point. And that's where you're gonna learn and unlock insights about what you actually want to achieve through your work. So if you feel inspired by a specific issue, but you have no idea how to solve it, then dive in and learn about all these amazing other organizations and people who are doing work on that issue. And then you can figure out where you could potentially fit in that ecosystem and you'll feel inspired and encouraged to you know, tackle a specific part of the work as you start to learn more about the depths and details of the issue you care about. So I encourage everybody to dive in. Again, your path can look a million different ways, but I really encourage you to do that solution landscape mapping because it's so important to know where we're already at and then envision where we could be. All right, great advice. And I hope everyone wrote that down. If not, you can watch the recording of this, I'm sure. And make sure you keep it on play until it sinks in, in a sense. And um, tell us, I think, a little bit, just to end this off on a high note on something we can all do. Tell us about Break Times and Power Monthly Giving Program. How can we help, in a sense? Awesome. Yeah. So if you're looking to support our work, well, first of all, I really appreciate it. Um, we are a community of action-driven optimists or a community of young people working to solve young adult homelessness. And every single person who can join our, this community can have a tremendous impact on this issue. Our Empower Monthly Giving campaign is an opportunity for folks to join us in this movement by contributing monthly to sustain our work of ending young adult homelessness. If you'd like to become part of this community, if you'd like to be part of the Breaktime family, you can go to breaktime.org slash empower and learn more about what you can do to become part of the Empower Monthly Giving Program. Even if it's just donating 10 bucks a month that you would have put towards Netflix or an expensive cup of coffee or something like that, um, it is meaningful to us and it puts you in touch with our community and really brings you into our family of change makers working to end digital homelessness. So we'd really appreciate your support and, and would be honored to, to get to know you. All right.
And with that, I think I would say it's been an honor getting to know you, Connor, and listening to your story, listening to the things that have made you you and have made break time so successful and so impactful to so many lives out there and actually making actionable changes and actionable steps towards ending young adult homelessness. I think it is a major problem all around the world. And to see you guys starting in your community is very inspiring. And hopefully it inspires our audience to take this up in their own communities or solve the problems that they are passionate about for the people around them. And again, in the spirit of what I do with the sentence, that's what we're trying to do, just connect as many of these people as we can together. So feel free to reach out if you've got any questions, if you've got any more things that you want to talk about here on Changing Reality, and we'll cover them in our upcoming sessions as well. So Changing Reality is every week at 10 p.m. ET, um, right here on WQHS Radio, and whatever time that is all around the world for all of you. So thank you so much for joining us today, Connor. It's been amazing having you. Thank you so much. This has been such an honor. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for joining us. Until next time. Bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality. Where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.